Welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. The outcry was fierce and nearly universal. Women's basketball teams arriving on site in San Antonio to compete for the 2021 NCAA Division I title were appalled at the so-called strength facilities available to them as compared to the men. A few yoga mats and dumbbells. The NCAA site management staff quickly responded and attempted to correct the obvious error. But by then, the floodgates opened on further inequities. Food availability, a lack of custom floors dedicated to the tournament, and the most galling, a lack of transparency around whether women can use the trademark phrase March Madness to describe their three-week tournament. My guest on the podcast today is Valerie Bennett. She is one of the leading experts in Title IX compliance in the United States. After spending 15 years in the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, she launched her company Title IX Specialists in the 1990s. While she was at the Office of Civil Rights, she conducted federal investigations of complaints alleging sex discrimination in athletics programs, provided technical assistance to national and regional athletics organizations, and provided on-site technical assistance to individual institutions. Just last month, she released her most recent edition of her well-regarded handbook, the 2020 Manual, Title IX and Intercollegiate Athletics, How It All Works in Plain English. Val, welcome to the podcast. Good morning from the West Coast. Thank you for having me. Glad to, ha glad to have you join us because I think we're in for a treat to learn a lot about how colleges and universities are dealing with this. As you and I were just saying, we're coming up on 50 years of Title IX. Why are college athletic programs still having such trouble navigating Title IX? Well, I think because there is so much to the policy, there is so much that you need to know. Uh, there are 13 major areas reviewed for compliance under Title IX. One of those areas is the access issue. Uh, that is uh, the three-part test, basically. The other 12 areas are equivalent treatment of those who have gained access to the program. And you need to collect information for all of your teams when making an assessment for Title IX compliance. One of my former OCR colleagues used to compare Title IX athletics investigations to doing 13 investigations and most any other issue. But wow. there's, there's a lot to know about the policy. So, and it's hard to become an expert on it. And I should also say some of the policy is uh, confusing. It sounds very convoluted. It isn't when you're familiar with it, but it can be very confusing to talk about uh, participation proportionate to enrollment and then scholarship dollars being uh, need to be uh, equivalent to the rates of participation. So people do get confused about those two major issues. Absolutely. It still confounds me and I've been, you know, part of it for as long as uh, the law's been around. So we know that uh, in 2021, colleges have the latitude to offer any combination of sports they want to in their varsity sports program. Yet anytime a women's sport is dropped, Title IX is invoked. How can colleges not get themselves into trouble in the current economic climate if they think that they need to drop sports? Yeah, obviously that's a very painful decision to make to discontinue teams. Um, the 
uh, policy under Title IX that deals with this question is something called the three-part test, which not many people truly understand. There are three separate ways to comply under the three-part test. The one people are most familiar with is test one, proportionality. And if a school chooses to comply with test one, then participation needs to be proportionate to enrollment. So if women are 52%, for example, of the enrolled full-time undergraduate students, then 52% or very close to that of the participants in the intercollegiate athletics program need to be women. Uh, people understand that mathematical calculation well enough. Test two, which is a history and continuing practice of program expansion for the underrepresented sex, and women are nearly always the underrepresented sex in an athletics program when someone is underrepresented, uh, comes down to what have you added lately for women? Um, if you haven't added any women's teams for a number of years, chances are unlikely that you're meeting test two. The third test, uh, full accommodation, which is the most difficult to analyze, but it's also the test that two thirds of the schools out there have been trying to meet, which is to fully and effectively accommodate the underrepresented sex, again, usually women. And that means offering every sport for women for which there is sufficient interest for a team, uh, sufficient ability, but also sufficient competition in the institution's normal competitive region, okay? So those are the three separate ways to comply. When someone drops a viable women's team, that pretty much precludes the ability to meet test three. You are no longer fully accommodating women. And it does real damage to trying to meet test two, a history and continuing practice of program expansion for women, which as I say, are nearly always the underrepresented gender. So what that leaves available for compliance when an institution drops viable women's teams is test one, proportionality. So by the time you're finished discontinuing teams, even if you're also discontinuing men's teams, uh, the end result of that needs to be participation proportionate to enrollment. I think there are a lot of schools that think, well, if we drop two women's teams and two men's teams, that's equitable. Unfortunately, that's not equitable if the end result is students of one gender are underrepresented. And again, that's usually always women. So that's the problem. That's uh, the the yeah, the end result needs to be proportionality, basically. Okay, okay. So when an athletic director comes to the office of a college president or another senior leader on campus, what kinds of questions uh, should that leader ask the athletic director if they come in with a proposal to drop sports? Pure and simple. Will we be meeting test one proportionality? <laughs> And uh, hopefully the answer would be yes. So it behooves, it behooves then these senior leaders to understand all the different ways that proportionality at first and then the other 12 areas that you mentioned also yeah. factor into this. 
Right. Again, the three-part test, meeting one of those three tests, that is the access issue to get into the program. The other 12 areas are treatment of those who have already gained access to the program. Title IX is a federal civil rights law, and this is standard um, uh, policy under federal civil rights laws. There are two basic provisions, equal access, equivalent treatment of those who have gained access. And the Title IX athletics policies follow that very same approach. And the equal access provision is the three-part test. Everything else, scholarships, coaching, equipment, facilities, uh, travel, whatever, those are all treatment issues for those who have gained access. Got it. All right, so let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into that, help our listeners understand other ways that you need to be in compliance with Title IX. Things like we, we've heard ADs toss, toss around, we're gonna roster manage this situation, or we're gonna create a tiering of sports in our programs. Talk to us a, a little about that. Well, roster management is basically trying to achieve compliance with test one of the three-part test. I mean, that's the only reason you would need to consider roster management is if you are trying to meet test one. Uh, test two and test three of the three-part test are about uh, fulfilling the needs of the underrepresented sex, and that's the point. They're underrepresented. Uh, you don't need to roster manage to achieve underrepresentation. So uh, that's all that roster management deals with is trying to uh, comply with uh, test one. Now, a lot of institutions tier their programs uh, informally. So there are certain teams that are just emphasized over other teams. There are some schools that have a very formal tiering system where the teams in the top level tiers are given the best benefits, the, the full complement of coaches, uh, the maximum allowance for athletic scholarships under athletic association rules, the best equipment, uh, scheduling, you know, out of state, out of region, that sort of thing. Uh, teams in the next tier, not so much. Maybe they're competing more within the region, may not have the a full slate of coaching, scholarships, et cetera. And then there's usually a third or a fourth tier where teams may be competing in-state, um, not traveling quite so much, not as many coaches, et cetera. Uh, there is no policy under Title IX saying that's a problem. You, you can indeed emphasize certain teams over others. The challenge that a lot of institutions have when they're tiering sports is to ensure that the same number of, or at least the proportionate number of athletes be represented in each tier. Uh, so that when you're providing benefits such as equipment uh, in your uh, team travel, scheduling, what have you, uh, those things are equivalent for equivalent proportions of the women's and men's programs. So for example, the football and men's basketball team uh, may be 40% of the male athletes, and they may be in the top tier getting the best benefits. Well, 40% of the female athletes need to be getting uh, the same level of benefits as the football and men's basketball teams. 
and 40% of the female athletes may be four or five women's teams, not just two teams. So that's what schools need to be certain of, is you've got equivalent proportions of the women's and men's programs in each tier. And then, of course, once you've done that, the caution is for athletic scholarships. The Title IX requirement for athletic scholarships is for total dollars to be proportionate to participation within one percentage point. It's a rather tight standard. So for example, if women are 47.3% of the participants, that's somewhere between 46.3 and 48.3 of the athletic scholarship dollars need to go to women. Now, in setting up your tiers, if you've got something going on with the scholarship levels, the end result needs to be that the proportionate number of dollars match or be within one percentage point of women's rate of participation. So that's the caution. And I have seen programs where they've put certain teams in the top tiers, as you might imagine those teams to be football and men's basketball, uh, and they've got everything else set up okay, but then they fall short of the scholarship uh, requirements. So if they're trying to accommodate the athletic association limits on the number of scholarships per sport, uh, that can create issues. Title IX does not particularly care what the scholarship limits are per sport. Those are not Title IX requirements. Those are athletic association requirements. And the Title IX requirement does not change because of the manner in which a school sets up its program. I think that's a really good point because I think a lot of folks in the general world who like college sports, who follow college sports, don't understand that these uh, at Division I programs in particular, they, there are caps on the total number of scholarships that can be offered uh, for a sport. And there's, there's no sport that comes close to football with the 85 full rides. And so that inherently sets up a system where you need to have more women's sports just to get to those, get to that number. The typical size of a women's team could be 12 full scholarships. It could be 20 full scholarships, but it takes at least four teams to get there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, and they need to be proportionate. So. Um, as I say, most schools are trying to meet test three and under test three, full accommodation of the underrepresented sex, uh, women are usually the underrepresented gender. Um, and if you're offering every team for women for which there's interest, ability and competition in your area, you're okay under test three. So even though women might be 55% of the enrollment and only 45% of the athletics participants, uh, that can be okay if you truly are meeting test three, for example. So it would then be the 45% of the athletic scholarships need to go to women, basically. One of the things that I've seen at the Big Ten is that uh, Big Ten schools try to offer all of the sports that the high school athletic association offers in the state. And that way they've, they've sort of got them covered, but not everybody can afford to have 36 sports, right? <laughs> So, so what do you do in that situation? You know, you're, let's say, um, you know, you're just a really good state school, but you, you just don't have the size of campus population to offer that breadth of sports. Do you then just say, well, then forget uh, prong three and just focus on prong one or two? 
Well, I, I certainly think the institutions in the so-called Power Five athletics conferences, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, the ACC, and the SEC, um, first of all, their uh, competitive regions tend to be rather large. Uh, those institutions also tend to have significant uh, enrollments. Um, but when you're looking at test three, for example, you're talking about sufficient interest, ability, and competition in your area. It's rarely lack of interest that I see as a reason why a school could not meet test three. It's usually lack of competition, <clears throat> excuse me, in the institution's normal competitive region that is the reason why many institutions cannot or, or can meet test three. When you're talking about the Power Five schools, their competitive regions tend to be extensive. What this means is there are lots of women's sports that meet interest, ability, and competition. So the end result is for a lot of those schools, test one may well be the best compliance option. And if they're meeting test one, then the number of sports is not so much the concern. It's, it's whether participation is proportionate to uh, enrollment. I think that's a really interesting dynamic in conference realignment that is still an ongoing issue for even division three schools who are constantly looking around to try to better position themselves, whether they're trying to limit their travel footprint or they're trying to align themselves with other schools that are more academically like themselves. I think that's an interesting dynamic that you could, if you change a conference, you could be changing what kinds of sports need to be in your portfolio. Well, yes. Um, well, I've worked with Division three schools whose normal competitive region is 200 miles from campus. I've actually worked with community colleges whose normal competitive region is within 25 miles of campus. And you can figure out where those schools are. They're in the major metropolitan areas of this country. Uh, and there are a ton of community colleges in, in those areas. Um, so the normal competitive region can uh, be drastically different depending on what type of program you're reviewing. Now, there is um, language in OCR's, the Office for Civil Rights of the U.S. Department of Education, which has a nationwide enforcement authority for Title IX. There is language in OCR's 1979 Intercollegiate Athletics Policy Interpretation, which is the equivalent of their Bible for Title IX athletics. But the policy uh, interpretation talks about the requirement to encourage competition in areas where it's otherwise been limited in the past. And basically what that language is intended to do is keep institutions from looking around saying, okay, we won't add women's lacrosse if you don't add women's lacrosse, thereby purposely limiting the available competition uh, in their area. Uh, this language basically prohibits that type of approach. But in the same vein, when you start setting up your athletics conferences to ensure that you're only going so far and only uh, participating in so many sports, be aware that certain schools on, say, the western fringe of the conference may have schools uh, in their competitive region that are not part of the conference. And Title IX would not be sympathetic to the idea that 
oh, we only play at our conference, which, you know, is a 200 mile radius uh, from our campus. But oh, by the way, the people in the next state over 25 miles away, we don't compete against them. We don't want to, we don't have to. So we shouldn't have to look at them for Title IX purposes. Title IX would not be sympathetic to that uh, perspective. That's interesting. That's really interesting. All right, and let's do a I was going to ask you, let's do a quick lightning round of five common reasons why a school can't comply with Title IX. I'll give you the situation and you tell us, give us a quick answer as to why that, that assumption is wrong. Ready to go? Okay. Okay. Um, well, uh, we can't comply with Title IX because football is exempt because it makes too much money. Uh, irrelevant about the money and football is not exempt. <laughs> <laughs> We've tried many, many ways. We try to make football exempt. I know. Well, I'm sorry. We just, our budget is too tight this year to add sports. We can't do anything about it. Uh, Title IX, again, is unsympathetic. Schools are expected to share the poverty between men and women. <laughs> Trying to give uh, you quick answers to your quick questions. That's great. That's perfect. Yep. Yeah. Well, we only have one field or one court or one pool, and we can't possibly accommodate another team. There's just no space. Uh, again, share the poverty, work it out, figure it out, schedule it so it can happen. Do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know that the baseball team has a really nice facility that we own, but the softball team rents or shares their field with somebody else and they are responsible for the field's upkeep. Why should we worry about that? Uh, the institution and the institution's administrators are responsible for providing equivalent benefits. They cannot pawn it off onto um, outside organizations who may not keep be keeping up facilities the way they want. So um, their responsibility for providing equivalent benefits does not evaporate. Just because they're leasing versus owning a facility. Just because they're leasing. I mean, off-campus facilities, whatever. It's whatever the institution makes available needs to be equivalent for women and men across the program. I, I, I'm sure in your, your uh, journeys, but just in my journeys as a coach and an athletics director, I have seen that single problem be one of the biggest ones at smaller schools because they have donors that will keep the baseball field up but they don't have anybody or they don't feel it's necessary to go out and seek out donors to support the softball field. Can you talk a little bit about donors and how all this works with Title IX? Um, you know, first of all, I always tell schools, by all means, take the money. <laughs> so, there are ways to comply. <laughs> um, and you do have a lot of flexibility. Now, just because the baseball and softball fields may not be equivalent doesn't mean you're violating Title IX. I mean, it's possible that the women's soccer field is better than the men's soccer field, and that would offset the difference between the baseball and softball fields. Under Title IX, you can have offsetting benefits where students of one gender have the advantage in one area and students of the other gender have an advantage in a different area. And if they are of equivalent weight or importance, then they can offset each other and the end result is compliance. But frankly, when I'm looking at facilities, 
uh, a lot of teams are using the same facilities, men's and women's teams, the basketball teams, the golf teams, the cross country teams, the track teams, the soccer teams. They're all using the same facilities. And what you wind up having left over for a lot of programs are the baseball and softball fields. And if those fields are not equivalent, then yes, there's a compliance problem. It, is, it does not matter how that happened, whether it's donors or parents getting together, booster clubs, what have you. The end result is that the facilities need to be equivalent. Um, and it's great if, if boosters or donors or whoever are, are uh, providing money to the school to improve baseball field. But the institution then has the obligation to ensure that the softball field is equivalent to the baseball field if indeed, by the time you look at the total athletics program, those two facilities would otherwise be different. I know that's hard for athletes to look at that. If you know, baseball and softball athletes sort of run in the same vein in the spring seasons and they look at they look at each other's stuff all the time. They look at each other's dugouts and locker rooms and it's hard for athletes to understand that Title IX looks at the program holistically, comprehensively. Yeah. Um, so what advice would you have for senior leaders in helping athletes understand that it doesn't have to be matched up with their partner sport all the way through? Well, just education, just inform them. I mean, uh, Title IX does not place any more importance on a basketball athlete than a cross-country athlete or a tennis athlete. Title IX is about gender and equivalent uh, treatment based on gender. So you have to look at the total men's program and compare it to the total women's program. And I have indeed been in meetings where the field hockey athletes, uh, the women's field hockey team, um, they were concerned that the uh, volleyball team had better benefits than they did. Well, okay, there are female athletes, namely on the volleyball team, who have better benefits. Uh, that is not a Title IX problem, uh, but it was hard for them to understand that. Um, I've also worked with schools where the coaches have said, well, the football and men's basketball team are getting this, and we don't get this. They weren't aware that there were women on other teams that did. They also were not aware that there were men's teams that were not getting <laughs> great stuff either. Yeah. You know, they weren't aware that the men's wrestling team was putting four people in a room during travel, for example, and uh, having to uh, practice at bizarre hours because the facility was not available when they wanted it to be available. They, they weren't aware that there were some men's teams not getting the same thing as football and men's basketball, for example. Yeah, I, I, can, I can really attest to that. Uh, my last AD's job was at a division three school and I really did not want to give the coaches the latitude to do their own travel and hotel arrangements because I know I would have some coaches who would pile 17 kids into one room just to save money so that they could go to Florida for spring break or whatever with all good intentions. But you can see, imagine the pushback from the athletes saying, wait a minute, softball only has two in a room and we have you know, 16 in a room, that type of thing. So I controlled the, the travel, the mode of travel when they left and then also their hotel accommodations so that they could be equitable across the board. Is that a strategy that you could extend to other areas as well? 
Uh, yes, by all means. I mean, team travel is one of the most expensive benefits for any individual team. You're talking about coaches, salary, scholarships, team travel. Those tend to be the, the big areas of expense. Now, I've worked with many schools where the administrators are telling the coaches, you will put two in a room. Here's the money you will have for meals uh, per athlete per day. Uh, all of this is more than sufficient to... Um, have the uh, athletes eating nutritious meals instead of driving through the you know the fast food lane at some place, um, and then when I'm doing a review, they find out that oh there are a couple of teams putting four people in a room and stopping at the uh, fast food restaurants. So despite the administrator's best effort efforts, they do have coaches who are not following uh, the policies of the institution, but. Certainly in setting up policies like that, uh, administrators setting up policies that should guarantee uh, equity. Uh, can you do that in other areas? Absolutely. Uh, in areas like scheduling equipment, uh, coaching is one of the most important benefits under Title IX, uh, and obviously one of the most important benefits for students. Uh, if you are going to provide a men's team with the full complement of coaching uh, permitted under NCAA rules, then you need to be prepared to do the same thing on the women's side. And certainly the, those limits apply to NCAA Division I programs, and by and large that's what I find is uh, women's and men's teams at the full complement of coaches. But that's a very important benefit. Um, if say division three, you decide to have three coaches for men's basketball, you really ought to plan to have three coaches for women's basketball as well. And uh, take that sort of policy across, you know, athletics department policy uh, across your program. I, I find that absolutely a great piece of advice because I think it's, it's so easy for, for whatever reason for certain men's teams and sometimes women's teams to attract enorm enormous numbers of volunteer coaches who all just want to be a part of the ride. And I think senior leaders seem to be aware of the liability and responsibilities that you have just by adding in extra coaches who don't receive the same staff training, who don't understand you know, how this works in the campus culture, that type of thing. Any advice on that? Well, Title IX does not really look at volunteer coaches quite so much. We're talking about compensated coaches. Okay. So um, volunteer coaches, yeah, you can have a lot for men's teams and not so many for women's teams. Uh, it is something to be aware of. I've worked with a couple of Division three schools, for example, um, where the volunteer coaches were better coaches than the compensated coaches. <laughs> and it was very difficult to ignore the fact that they were available to the team and the history established by these volunteer coaches as they had been volunteers for 10 years at that institution, for example, uh, had you know, backgrounds as professional athletes in their sport. I mean, you cannot just ignore the volunteer coaches, you do have to pay attention to it. But by and large, the focus under Title IX is on the compensated coaches. Now, it doesn't take much for a coach to be considered compensated under uh, Title IX. Um, 
in working with some high schools, you know, the head coach will, <laughs> will uh, uh, you know, hand $100 to the volunteer or a gift certificate or something as, you know, here's this for your gas money. Thank you for your help this year. And they just created a compensated coach for the school district. Right. That's a really, really important point. Again, I don't think we, enough senior leaders start asking questions when they look at the the websites of the individual teams and you see like the basketball team has seven coaches here. What's going on here, you know? <laughs> well, and yeah, by all means, let's make sure these are uh, uh, volunteers of some sort. I mean, uh, I'm not an expert on NCAA rules. I don't know everything about that 500 page rule book that they have, but um, Title IX, once again, is not going to be confined by NCAA rules, or if there's some staff member uh, working with the basketball team, for example, who, by the way, has 25 years of coaching experience, and they just happen to be hanging out at practices in the games, uh, you have to take that into consideration. Yeah. So regardless of what the title may be for certain staff members. Well, Val, let's let's conclude our conversation with asking what I think is always the elephant in the room when you talk about Title IX. But why are so few colleges in compliance with Title IX? And therefore, if so few are in compliance, why then should senior leaders worry? No institution has ever lost federal funding for not being in compliance. So how do we how do we drive home the message that this is important? Um. Well, let's start with the first part of it. Um, when I started reviewing schools as a consultant, now mind you, when I worked at OCR headquarters, uh, I would see case files from all over the country because the regional offices were submitting them to headquarters and I was reviewing them and making uh, recommendations on what to do. So I've seen those cases. But in the 90s, when mid-90s, when I started consulting, I was seeing institutions with significant compliance problems, often not meeting the three-part test, had problems with scholarships. And when you started to look at equipment, scheduling, team travel, coaching availability, half of the women's teams would be disadvantaged in those areas. These days, I'm pleased to say it's no longer half the women's teams. It may be one women's team that doesn't quite have the practice schedule they want or is missing the practice uniforms that they want. Um, and uh, the end result of that is we've got minor compliance concerns uh, under these issues. But Title IX looks at things as whether a school has a pattern and practice of discrimination. So there could be very minor concerns in four or five or six areas under Title IX, which would culminate in the determination of a pattern and practice of discrimination that violates Title IX. But a lot of these minor issues, I mean, if I were the director of athletics, I might have trouble spotting some of these minor issues without going through the steps of a full-scale review. Now, if someone has got problems with the three-part test or scholarships, I mean, to me, those are the biggest issues to comply with, uh, coaching availability being the third biggest issue to comply with. 
uh, schools need to get those right. Um, and as I say, uh, uh, misperceptions about when schools do wind up cutting teams, we've got the same number of teams that must be equitable, often is not equitable. Um, they do need to get those right. Uh, the idea about uh, OCR never terminating federal funds for non-compliance, quite simply, OCR is required by federal regulation to seek voluntary resolution. Okay, so OCR cannot just say, oh, they're not complying, we're terminating funds tomorrow. They do not have that legal ability to do that. But in the requirement to seek a voluntary resolution, they have always been successful at that, which is why they have not terminated funds on Title IX athletics cases. I think that's a really good point to, to end our conversation on. I think um, this is about treating athletes the way that you'd want your son or daughter being treated in an athletic opportunity on campus. And as we move into this, you know, post-COVID-19 era, I hope, I hope we'll come out of this realizing that all athletes' voices matter and how we treat our, our students in the classroom should mirror how we treat them on the athletic fields and courts so that they have their equal opportunity for uh, success and confidence in, in what they're doing. Val, I really, really appreciate your time today. You, you bring such good expertise and experience to this discussion. Thank you for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Karen. It's been fun.